one today. This is the fifth of them. So this is the one that is called Christ-Compelled Multiplication. So let's get right to it. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to sort of get us right into this topic and talk about it some. Therefore, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance uh, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. For we are convinced of this, that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So these are the inspired words from the apostle in this case. What are the things that most people try to convince you of or persuade you toward? Who are the people or the kinds of people most known for doing persuasion? If you think about it for a minute, you think of people like sales people, sales, marketing, all those ads that you see. That's that's one area, a form of persuasion. What about politicians and candidates? People want to persuade you. How about the social pressure just of the people around, sort of peer influence? There's definite persuasion that's attempted among people, just social persuasion. Health experts want to persuade you. The media. How about the area of law? Lawyers, right, trying to persuade people. How about in entertainment? You know, all the entertainment you consume, is there persu- any persuasion going on there? Anyone trying to convince you to think a certain way? And of course we think about religious people and religious groups, wherever you might encounter them. Maybe even on, maybe even on your doorstep, looking to persuade. So this, this word from the apostle here in 1 Corinthians says that we... Persuade, knowing the fear of the Lord, he says, and because the love of Christ compels or constrains us, we persuade. Well, so let's look at this. Christ compelled multiplication. They give us, as they all, as they always do in each case, a little, uh, just a brief little summary of kind of what they mean. A little statement here says, on this topic, it says the gospel is what they write: the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message he proclaimed, the life he lived. And the ministry he modeled set into motion a redemptive movement destined to fill the whole earth. So that's the statement. It sort of goes along with the principle. We persuade people, and we can think about all those groups. Certainly it's true, right? All those things I listed, I mean, it's very evident, I think, to all of us that in every case, every example that I gave... There, there are people trying to convince people of things for, for various reasons. We'll look at all of them in a second again, a little more closely. But it's not just those people who do this. In fact, 
As much as we, we think of them first, yeah, those advertisers, yeah, those politicians, yeah, those Jehovah's Witnesses coming to my house, they're all trying to persuade. Yeah, true. But they're not the only ones who do it. The fact is, everybody does it. You do it. Everybody does it. Everybody engages in the attempt to sort of practice as best they can the art if, if you want to call it that, of persuading people. I mean, if you think about it, think about the last few conversations that you had. Beyond just, hey, how you doing? How about that weather, man? Beyond just that, any real conversations you had, think about the last few. I mean, were you not probably in some way and at some point trying to persuade them? Of something to think a certain way, think a different way. There are some people that sort of act like this is wrong somehow, sort of act sheepish about it, like, uh, I don't know, somehow it's illicit to try to persuade people of your point of view. It's not illicit, it's normal. It's just the typical healthy social interactive, uh, you know. Activity of human beings. They try to convince each other of things. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself at all. And you do it all the time. A lot of people do it with regard to really trivial things, you know, things that don't matter. I mean, in fact, you see this quite a bit, right? I mean, people will really, will really lock horns to try to persuade each other about something like, you know, who was the greatest quarterback of all time? Who's the greatest point guard? This band is better than that band. The sequel was better than the first one. And then, you know, like full-scale engagement trying to persuade each other of uh, that. So, Or like, you know, um, man, no way. Uh, you eat there? I wouldn't eat there with your mouth. You should eat here. I mean, people, people you know, those, those things at the end of the day don't matter that much. But we still exert a lot of our effort to convince people, don't we, of those kinds of things. How much more then... Things that actually count, things that, things that matter. Yeah, so we do it. Everybody does it. Paul in that verse says, we do it. The question is, how are we going about doing it? Are we doing it right? Are we doing it well? So I want you to think about three things here. When we, when we consider uh, persuasion, when we consider convincing, uh, the Word of God, among the other things it does, exhorts, reproves, it convinces. So then, three things, and you're going to love this because they all start with an M. So if you really like, you know, alliteration in your points, uh, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, if, if there's three points and they all either rhyme or start with the same letter, that's high-quality sermonizing. Like 90% of the sermons I ever heard growing up had three points, and they all either rhymed or started with the same letter. So I got that for you right now. So I make them real clear on the following slide. That's your cue, slide master. Uh, so motive, it, it, the slide master will catch up soon enough. She's still, she's still basking in the glory. I can't tell which one it is back there actually at the helm, but... In the glory of, of, uh, of the birthday song. Motive. Message. 
and method. These are the three things to want to consider in any kind of persuading. In all of those examples I gave of people who persuade or try to convince, this is, this is what we consider, what we ought to consider. The motive, the message, and the methods. Let's think a little bit about those. I'm just going to run through them one at a time. And I listed them earlier to you. And let's think about them, a little thought experiment to consider how this works. So, for example, in the area of sales, in the area of those who market to you. And by the way, I'm sure you recognize you're being marketed to all the time. You are being marketed to around the clock, constantly. Now, people have always tried to market things. Advertisers, if you are good at advertising, if you're one of these, you have these ag- advertising firms and adver- some of these ad- advertising executives, they make real money because it's so valuable if someone is extra, extra, extra good at helping you sell stuff to people. And this is about marketing. And so this is happening all the time. Now, when some of us, you know, when we're a little on the older side, unlike youthful, youthful Aaron, uh, some of us uh, have had more birthdays. And you remember a time, I mean, it's happened a lot, but there's just more opportunity now. So for some of us, you know, well, the kind of ads we got were on a billboard when you drove by, and then maybe if you read the newspaper, maybe a few ads taken out there, and, you know, if you watched a television program, then every 10 minutes or so, they'd throw a few ads at you. I mean, you know, that's kind of how you got marketed to. Now, now you're online, and the opportunities to advertise are all over the place, all over the place, and everyone wants a shot. And now everything is a sponsorship, you know, some of you sports fans remember a more innocent time when you just had the Orange Bowl and the Fiesta Bowl. And the it wasn't the Tostitos, the, the, the Nokia, the, you know, all these brands and they change everyone to the Chick-fil-A. It's like everybody's in on, everything is brought to you by somebody. Because we're just marketed to all the time. So let's think about it. Method or motive, message, and method. What's the motive? of sales and marketing. Well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's just financial. It's The motive is just to make sales so as to earn profits. It's pretty straightforward. That's the motive. What's the message? Well, it depends on the product, but it's always basically the benefits of the product. Whatever they're selling, that's good. You should buy it. You need this. You ought to buy this. That's the message. And the method, in this case, well, it's, I mean, it's very versatile because the methods in this realm are, you, are basically you name it. Whatever is effective, that's the method. So the appeal to everything, anything, the appeal to your sense of need, your want, the appeal to status, this will make you look better, sound better, this will make you more friends, you'll feel better the appeal to greed, and the appeal to every single possible emotion that you can possibly have. Advertisers are really bizarre the way that they will play on all the different emotions. Um, Sometimes, of course, now, humor always works. So on a Super Bowl Sunday, we we would recognize, right, on a Super Bowl Sunday, that all the years in the past, I don't know if it's even quite as true now, because now marketing has sort of gone out of the floodgates and it's 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 everywhere now so that 
those TV spots aren't, are, they're still important and they're still valuable and people still pay millions for the 30 seconds that they get because of the eyeballs that are, that are on, that are, that are all together in one accord on the Super Bowl. But, you know, all the years past, remember some of you don't even like the Super Bowl, but you would tune in for what? All those great commercials. Because given that rare shot, they would go all in to try to make the best ads they could. And a lot of times, the ones that were most effective were the funniest ones. I mean, they, the, the, they stick with you. They, they, they land in your brain and you remember them for a long time because the, because the commercials made you laugh. And that works. That works if you laugh. So that, th those work well. But then some advertisers make commercials to try to play on other emotions. And sometimes it's almost... Uh, it's almost weird and creepy the way that they will there will be an ad and it will be so serious and deep and profound and I mean like it'll move you and then it's like so remember to buy Doritos and it's like wait a minute the juxtaposition between how serious this ad was how it really tugged at the heartstrings and then it's like you're hawking what a taco joint for that. It, it's, it's, it's strange, but why, why do they do it? They know it doesn't matter. Look, that ad about that family and that reuniting of the people and everything, and it made you cry and everything, that got nothing to do with drinking a Pepsi. But you'll remember it. And then, like, in your head, Pepsi's sort of associated with it. And then, uh, You might think, well, that's silly. I know, I, I agree. But apparently it works. Because if it didn't work, people wouldn't be shelling out just truckloads of cash to do it. If there was no return on it, it must work. So that's advertising. What about politicians? What about political campaigns? We mentioned them. Do they engage in the art of persuasion? Of course they do. Look, we just we just lived through a whole year of it, didn't we? We just lived through a whole year of it. If you know people who live in those very uh, those big time swing districts, they will tell you how sick. They got how tired they got, how just how much fatigue they got of being marketed to by ad campaigns over and over. Multiplied millions of dollars were poured into certain zip codes to get them to vote certain ways. What's the motive? Just to get the votes. That's it. The motive in this case, get votes in order to win elections, in order to get office, in order to gain power, in order to enact the policies you want to do. So that's the motive. The message, well, it's typically just the benefits of the person and the policies. If you want to live longer, vote for so-and-so. Well, you want to be, if you want more money, if you want things to do better, if you want to be a good person, if you want the world to go better, if you want peace and harmony, if you want everyone to hold hands and it all's gonna go, it's all going to go away and the, and the earth will be saved and it's all going to be growing, you know, you, whatever you get, the benefits of the candidate coupled with kind of the warning against the opponents. Or you can vote that way, in which case it's all going down. It's all over. It's going to be dark, ooh, dreary, terrible. That's the message. What's the method? The method of the way politicians want to persuade you. Again, kind of like with regular uh, advertising, they'll just use anything that works. Anything that works. The appeals to every possible thing. Your self-interest, your patriotism, uh, fear, guilt, and shame. How could you vote for that person? How dare you? Slander of the opponent, you know, the uh, hit pieces and so on. 
We know about all this, right? We've seen all this. I was thinking back to uh, the first election I remember as a kid was 1980. It was Reagan and Carter, right? And I remember, I, I didn't know, understand much about it. I was a kid in grade school. But I remember on the election day, they tried to talk to us and explain to us, like, well, here's what, here's what it's all about. And, and then the, we had our own little mock election in the classroom just to sort of practice and see what it's like, whatever. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And, and I remember I, I went home and I, and I asked my dad, I said, which one did you vote for, Reagan or Carter? And he said, neither one. I voted for Anderson. And I was like, who? He's not one of the options. Well, Anderson, most people probably would never remember, was the independent guy out of Illinois. He got him about 6% of the vote. Uh, and that's, I guess that's who he went for. But, but of course, Reagan really cleaned up in that election. And, and, he, and he did again four years later. A lot of people would point to the fact that he was at, they were good at ads. They used a lot of skillful ads. Um, a lot of times political ads come down to slogans and stuff. And the, one of his that they say was very um, effective was the one, I guess I've seen it, and it's – I don't remember everything about it, but it sort of had this gentle old man's voice saying, it's morning in America. You guys, anybody remember that? It's morning in America. And it got people to sort of feel a certain way. And uh, Reagan Reagan was very good at this personally. He was an Hollywood actor. So um, he used humor. He was very good at using humor. And I do remember when he ran against Mondale um, in, a, in a live national televised debate People had people had raised an issue against him about his age. I guess Reagan's a pretty old guy at the time, which is funny to think about now when you think about Bernie and, and Trump and especially Biden. All those guys are, are uh, older, I think, than Reagan might have been at that time, but they were making an age of it. So somebody uh, in this live national debate brought it up uh, to, to Reagan about age, and he was so masterful, he said, well, <laughs> he said... I refuse to make age an issue in this campaign. I will not hold my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. And everybody laughed, and, and, and you see Mondale over there just cracking up. He thought it was hilarious. That was very effective. So political ads, politicians, obviously the art of persuasion. Well, the next example I had given you was uh, social persuasion, peers, right? And especially now because of social media, whatever influence society exerts, whatever pressure of peers existed for all of us before the Internet, multiply it times 10 now. Because now, you know, that the, the pressure that is felt is, is around the clock. Because for some of us, you might have felt the pressure to think a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way. But you felt it when you were around peers. Like you felt it when you were in their midst. You felt it when you went to school or when you were hanging out. With, but like they didn't follow you around everywhere. But social media follows you everywhere. And a lot of younger people now are on it all the time. It's like there's hardly a break from it. So like in other words, the, the influence is exerted at every second. During your meals, you're seeing what people think and say and believe. While you're Even while you're supposed to be watching something else, like... You're partly watching this show, but half your brain is still watching what other people think about that show. I guarantee you today, during the Super Bowl, a bunch of us, I'll speak for myself for sure, will just be watching the game. I'll just be watching the game. 
But you know what a bunch of other people will be doing, particularly under a certain age? They'll be half watching the game and half watching what hundreds of other people think about what's going on in the game. They'll be scrolling at what everyone else is saying about the game. Because everything that happens in the game, people are tweeting about what happened in the game. And you know what I mean? So this makes the pressure of the social pressure even more intense. What's the motive of social pressure? Well, typically it's sort of to build social consensus, to, to sort of gain safety in numbers, because there's sort of a sense of power and, and a little bit, and, and maybe security in shared groupthink. So you think, it's not just me that thinks a certain way. We all think this way. I feel better about my point of view because I know that lots of people share it with me. And people who don't share it with me, that makes me feel uneasy and maybe even a little threatened. I need to pull them in and make them think the same way. Because it's there's a especially when you're not thoroughly convinced of your view, and especially when you're not confident in your view, those who oppose you make you very uneasy and make you feel threatened. And you've got to persuade them. I think that's part of the motive of peer group uh, pressure in order to, for the sake of persuading. What's the message then of it? I don't know. Maybe the message is something like, um, think like us, be one of the good ones. (laughs) Be one of the cool kids. Be on the right side of history. Be one of the ones that we can all say, you're the good one. And you're not those baddies over there that think the other way. I think that's a lot of what the message is, whatever the issue is. And the method, of course, is just the application of social pressure, which often implies a kind of guilt or shame, as we said. Um, What kind of person must you be if you're not with us on this? You're not with us, you're against us. How dare you? How could you? Shame, shame, shame. The threat of being ostracized. You're not one of us. You're on the outs. Uh, And the ostracizing could be just socially, like you don't have friends anymore. It, in some cases today, there's a culture, you know, they, they typically call it cancel culture, but that's the ostracizing can even be more severe. You are now ostracized from your position, from your job, from your chance of promotion, because you don't think right. And that's pressure. Com- that adds to the social component other components, because then, then the social bleeds into the financial and status and possible um, a possible um, you know, upward path to being able to to expand your horizons. You can't do it. You're held back if you don't get on board. Um, it's you know, it's amazing actually how powerful this is now. I think we might underestimate even right now just how potent this kind of persuasion is right now. Uh, even more than money in some ways, more than bribing, more in some ways this is. I, I know because I've seen I've been watching this happen to otherwise very powerful people even people I'm not talking about just younger people or weak-minded people I mean I mean this this kind of pressure has been effective to persuade people who have, who are at the top of the food chain CEOs I mean like university presidents and people who otherwise should be very confident in their point of view and should be able to take a stand will cave to this kind of thing because they're on Twitter too, and they and they're afraid of, of social mobs, so it's very powerful this kind of persuasion. And it's not even so much about truth; it's just about it's just about the pressure. Well, 
The next one I listed for you were health experts. Health experts want to persuade us of things. And again, this is very timely. In the last year, there's been all this battling between so-called health experts. Well, what's the uh, motive for health experts? Well, the, well, ideally, and, and in the best cases, it's simply to help people. It's healthier people. Okay, if the motives are, are the purer motive of it is healthier people. Sometimes other motives get mixed in, right? And this is one of the difficulties we have today is especially in, in, the wake of, in the wake of such big health concerns because we've been dealing with this bizarre situation of a, of a brand new virus came along and watching everyone twist in the wind about how, what to do about it. And so in, in that environment, the pure motive of persuading people for their good because I want people to be healthy. I want, I'm in it for you. We are suspicious sometimes of the, the mixture, the mixed motives, of political elements that come into it. And so we're trying to sort that stuff out. Well, what's the message then of, of a health expert? Well, I, again, ideally it's health benefits, better life, longer life, healthier living. I mean, even the people that tell you don't eat eggs, no, eggs are good, eggs are bad, caffeine good, caffeine bad. You know, we've been through down these roads over the years. Uh, we change our minds. What's good, what's right, what you should take this, no, don't take this. The method of health experts is just to appeal to your self-interest, to appeal to, you know, look, this is the ultimate self-interest is I, I don't want to be sick. <laughs> I don't want to ruin my liver. I don't want to damage myself. I don't want to invite toxins in, I mean, you know, whatever it is. So that one's obvious. What about, I listed media to you about, what about media? What about the persuasion of media? Media, of course, exists partly to inform, but partly to actually shape perspective. Not just to tell you about what's going on, but how you ought to see what's going on. What sort of sometimes the presentation of news carries with it the perspective of how you ought to consider the news, what your perspective should be on it, and that's the mo so the motives aren't exactly just to report to you. What about what's the message? Well, the message of media is, is ideally just the news of the day. Hey, you should know this stuff's happening. Hey, something just happened. You ought to know about it. Here's what we know. But as we know, there's also, as I said, the message also includes sort of rhetorical angles of how you ought to consider it to sort of get into your mind and help and help to tweak whether you ought to think this is a good thing, a bad thing, whether you like, don't like. The method of how media does this is through effective writing, through the use of headlines, through video editing, rhetorical terminology. What words are they using? You ought to always consider. I remember a guy one time, a long time ago, I can't remember who it was, but he would do little segments called How to Read a News Story. And he would present a news story, and then he would simply just analyze it. And it was very fascinating. I thought to myself, everyone today should, be, should get better at this, right? Everyone today needs to learn how to be a discerning consumer of news. Because we often don't even... Notice, and a lot of people it just washes over them. They just take it all in. They're not discerning. But every headline was decided on by somebody. And a lot of times people don't even read past a headline. They just see a headline. They're too busy to read the rest. They just they just they just jump headline to headline. And they let the headline kind of form what they think it's about. So how you word the headline can can shape how the people think that story is. Right? You, could, you can craft villains and heroes just in headlines. 
You can make people think this was a good thing or a bad thing just by how you word the headline. Just same way with video editing. You know, I remember Francis Schaeffer years ago, the great, the great Presbyterian philosopher, I lived in Europe, great thinker, influenced a lot of people. Francis Schaeffer started, and this is in the 60s, to show people the power of, of video editing. And he, he did an example where he showed an event happening on a camera and how it was covered. And then he showed the bigger picture of what was going on on the outskirts. And then he showed you how, depending on where you placed the camera and what you showed people, you could actually craft two different stories out of it. And it was all camera placement and what you cut and what, what hits the floor and what makes it to real, to air. And, and this was very – and before him, of course, the wise, wise people have shown this for years. You know, way back in uh, – I'm trying to think maybe the, 18th, the late 18th century. I forget his years. But the great Danish uh, Christian philosopher uh, Kierkegaard – you might have heard his name. Kierkegaard. His name means churchyard. The, the melancholy Dane, they call him. And one of his one of his subjects was um, groupthink and print media. Print media was new in his day. This is before video and before radio, but new. It was the first time when when uh, when the state sort of worked with the printing press to put out something that everyone read regularly, and he he started to sh he started to sound the alarm that someone is crafting how you see everything. Someone is deciding what you should know, what you shouldn't know, and what your perspective should be. That's a long time ago. It's still true. So you should be discerning about that. What about lawyers we mentioned? This is the most obvious one. When you think about somebody trying to persuade somebody, you probably think of about 10 million courtroom dramas that you've witnessed on TV. Because we've all seen 100,000 versions of somebody in a courtroom talking to a jury, representing a client. This is one of the favorite things pe for people to put on TV. For some reason, the world is fascinated by courtroom arguments and so on. But lawyers, of course, have to learn the art of persuasion. Do they not? Now, maybe some attorneys who just do paperwork don't have to learn it. But certainly everyone who goes into courtrooms to talk before judges or juries has to learn this. If you're going to be any good at it, you've got to learn what's the motive of lawyers to win a case, usually for pay because somebody hired them to do it. Sometimes there's for a little bit of precedent they might, sometimes for prestige, but usually just for money. What's the message of a lawyer or an attorney? Well, in a courtroom, the message is simply my client, whatever the person, group, organization, whatever it is, my client is in the right and you should find in favor of my client. That's basically the message, whatever that is. And what are the methods? The methods are anything that work. Ideally, it's hard evidence. Exhibit A. You know, it's stuff that's very persuasive because it's obvious. I have evidence. But it's, let's face it, it's all a lot more than that. It's all kinds of uh, tools of the trade. I mean, good lawyers have bags of tricks. They got all kinds of rhetorical abilities, how they say everything, how they craft the narrative. They appeal to every emotion they can to make it work. They could, they'll, they'll use all kinds of them. We, we know of famous little quips and one-liners and things lawyers did, right? If it doesn't fit, you must what? Acquit! Right? Every little jingle, every little thing you can do uh, is, a, is part of the methodology because you're just the goal is to win. Right? So that's how that works. So we know about that. 
I mentioned entertainment. Now, entertainment has a motive, um, which is profits, <laughs> along with a little bit, along with you know, fame and prestige. But there's also, in a lot of cases today, entertainment involves messaging. Entertainment, yes, it wants to persuade you sometimes. The people that make the stories, that write the stories, that cast the people, that they sometimes want to shape your point of view. They also want to entertain you. They have to entertain you, or they're not gonna they're gonna lose money. They're not gonna get hired again. But but if they can entertain you and they can message to you, they like doing that. In fact, sometimes some movie makers and show writers are actually very preachy. Sometimes they're sometimes it's almost heavy-handed. It's like, please, they're beating me over the head to make me think a certain way by how you tell me this story. Entertainment can do this. Um, the message, of course, is just all kinds of things. Who knows? Now, occasionally there's no message. Sometimes it's just entertainment. That's it. There's no message. But often there is a message. And the way they do it, what's their method? Their method's very effective. It's telling good stories, using good characters that you come to identify with, making you kind of buy in, getting, get sucking you in, making you a binge watcher, grabbing your attention, and then through the way they tell the story, really getting you by the emotions. And now they've got you. And then they can craft how you see things. And honestly, good storytelling is, statistics show it, and I think we know this is true, it's more effective on people today than just making a good case to them straight ahead, you know? In other words, I might even I might even have an ironclad case for why this is the right view on a subject. And I could lay that out for you in great detail, and you could say, wow. <laughs> then someone could make a really, really good movie or TV show that doesn't say it that way. It just tells you a story, but it tells you a story from the point of view of the other side. And it gets you to sympathize with that person's plight. And by the end of that, you may say, even though I presented a great case, you're persuaded on the other side because, man, that story got you. I just got you right here. That works. And, of course, as we well know, entertainment is more... It's proliferated beyond anything we might have imagined. You know, I read an essay by somebody recently that made the case, I thought it was pretty persuasive, that that what happened in the last year, the way that we the way that we locked entire nations down, the way that we locked things down and clamped them down could not have been possible prior to the advent of entertainment the way we have it. And what they were saying is they said people had you know there's more there are more hours of entertainment than you have hours to live, honestly. Really. I mean there's you can't live long enough to watch everything that's now available on all the platforms. I mean, you'd have to watch around the clock, and, and you just may run out of time. You're going you're gonna to fall behind every year. You know, you're going to go into debt. Well, this, locking people down, just allowed people to sit and just marinate. There's enough stuff they can watch. But they said, you know, imagine, imagine years ago. Some of you remember when you'd stay home from school. Anybody remember staying home from school? And you'd be like, all right, hey, I'll have to go to school. Well, what do you do? Well, I mean, you go out and play or whatever, but if, you're, if, you, if you were supposed to be sick or something, well, you can't go out and play. Or if the weather's bad, whatever. Well, let's see. You could turn on the TV 
What do you got? Stay home from school, turn on the TV. You got three or four channels, and none of it's worth anything. I got Days of Our Lives over here. I got General Hospital over here. I got Phil Donahue. Man, no eighth grader wants to watch that garbage. There's nothing good on. Oh, PBS? Maybe. I don't know. It depends. So in other words, we didn't have all that. You, you, maybe you could read a lot of good books. That's probably what people might have done. You didn't have on-demand entertainment. Imagine now months and months of no work and no school and sitting at home and not going out in the evenings without all the entertainment we now have. This writer was saying people would have gone nuts. And they probably would have gone to the streets and said, no, we won't do this. But they had entertainment. All right. Well, though we get to religious groups and those who proselytize, what's the motive of a religious organization? Well, it's generally, you know, it's spiritual. It's obedience to something they believe is the higher calling, higher rewards. Sometimes earthly and worldly rewards are mixed in with the higher rewards, right? But that's how it is. What's the message of a religious group or person using persuasion on you? The message in that in that case all depends on the doctrines of that view, the worldview. It's usually some form of salvation. It's usually some form of how to fix your problems. Because, you know, that's what people ultimately want. And the methods, then, of religious people trying to persuade... Well, there's the appeal to spiritual things. The appeal, you're, you want to be right with God. You want to escape judgment. You want to be forgiven for all the guilt that you have. You want to find some kind of wholeness in your life. You want to gain peace of mind. You want success in life. You want to achieve and get over the humps and put your past behind you. You want to belong to a community. You have a sort of sense of purpose in the world, a sense of mission. All that stuff helps. It's part of the method of the, what you appeal to. Uh, depending on who it is, different religious groups. And they're, and they're busy all around the world, religious groups, doing this stuff. And, of course, sometimes it's mixed. Uh, obviously, it is sometimes mixed. We know that to be true, right? And, um, I mean, we, you know, we, we all understand how that works, uh, how, how it's not always the same. But what about us, then? What about What is the biblical motive? We look at all these different examples of persuasion and convincing. Ah, why they do it? What's behind it? What's the message they have? What is their methodology? What about us? Well, motive-wise, we looked at a passage. We saw Paul saying, mentioning in that passage that we read, two motives. He began by saying, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. And then he says later, the love of Christ compels us to do it. Is it a problem combining those two? Is there some dichotomy between those two? Can we mix it? Can we combine them and see them together? The Bible does. I don't see Paul having any trouble. I don't see Paul thinking, well, the fear of the Lord, that's that's that Old Testament kind of stuff. But the love of Christ, that's the New Testament. He doesn't see it that way. He has both of them in this same verse or in the same passage here. It's both of them. Yes, it's the fear of the Lord, and yes, it's the love of Christ that compels. And you, you don't have to you don't have to feel the conflict between them. This verb he uses compels us. Christ compelled multiplication. 
The love of Christ compels. It means something, uh, this Greek term, like, like a squeezing, a pressure that you feel on you that kind of makes you do a thing. And so translations into English have, have sort of uh, rendered this in interesting different ways. So Wycliffe, for example, in his English, uh, early English, he said the love of Christ driveth us, driveth us. The King James followed Tyndale in saying the love of Christ constraineth us. The New King James in the Holman Bible and then in the NIV have compels, as I read it. The Revised Standard, the New American Standard, and the ESV says the love of Christ controls us. The New Revised Standard said urges us on. And the Good News Translation says we are ruled by the love of Christ. But you get the point here. Motive, motive really matters. Motive means everything to God. You know, Jesus would talk to people. Remember, he would look at people. He always looked deeper into the hearts of people. Uh, he didn't just look at their performance or their outcome. And in this passage, you know, Paul says, we're not here just trying to trying to show you something you could boast about. We're not, we're not, we're, this isn't just an outward thing. Like we are, we are properly motivated here uh, in what we're doing. Jesus wasn't impressed with just what you did, uh, but what your motive is really mattered. You know, he says, if you want to give to the poor, good, it's good to give to the poor. But don't do it so that everyone can see what a wonderful, giving, magnanimous person you are. Do it in secret. Do it because the motive should be that you fear God and the love of Christ compels you to do it. Not so that everyone can see you think that you're wonderful. So can the church get her motives mixed? Mm, can that happen? Motives to get confused? How often in the history of men have sought to spread the kingdom? It's good to spread the kingdom. Multiplication. But, but how often have they done it kind of so their fortunes would grow? You read about the old conquistadors, you know, coming out of Spain. They went to the New World. They would bring small armies of people. And they would bring, they would bring boats to carry back goods. And they'd bring a priest. Because, you know, they want to convert the people. And that some of them sort of figured that, you know, we spread the kingdom, we convert some people, and I'll score some spiritual points that way. I'm a good Christian, you know. Along with other things, I'm also a fine, upstanding Christian. I'll bring a priest. We'll convert some people. Isn't that wonderful? But of course, they had other motives at play. They wouldn't have got on those boats, and they wouldn't have gone overseas just to spread the kingdom. They were not primarily missionaries. They threw missions in on the side. The motives are mixed, you see. There are some pastors who want to see people come. They want to reach out. They want to see the church grow. But some of it's kind of to grow their brand, to grow their prestige. They like seeing their logo, you know, out there in the community. They like to feel the power of their voice in that community, the influence of their personality. They like it when people recognize them in town, when, you know, they like those meals to be free sometimes, you know. Well, that's a mixed motive. Do I even have to mention the prosperity preachers and certain televangelists? Do I even have to talk about that, of what the, where their motives are? What about our message? Paul says, for we are convinced, or we have concluded what? That one died for all, and that he died so that everyone would die to themselves and live for him. That he died and was raised again. That's the message. That's the gospel and saints of old in the in the ages past 
have died in droves for the purity of the message of the Bible to keep the gospel from being corrupted, from, from, to keep it from taint. The Reformation was not the outcome or the outgrowth of political dispute. Politics entered into it later in, in certain places. But before politics really became a factor, the Reformation broke out because it was doctrinal. It was the message that was being corrupted. And God-fearing servants were willing to risk everything. And of course, a lot of them did risk everything. Just because they said, this message, I can't stand by when the gospel is corrupted into something else. The message, our message really matters. So seriously did Paul take the integrity of the message that he told the Galatians. In Galatians 1.8, he said, if even I come back to you later, or an angel comes to you, and and teaches and preaches to you a different gospel than this one, let him be accursed. That message is false. Even if I come back and preach it, I'll be wrong. So the message, the message is vital in terms of how we, how, how the church goes forth in multiplication. It has to be by the same message. It can't be a mixed message. And what about the method? He says we persuade, but how do we do it? And essentially, this is by the word of truth. No tricks. You heard that passage Paul read earlier when, when Paul is saying, we offered you the gospel free of charge. In 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote to these people, Paul says to them, I did not come to you with lofty eloquence. No, I didn't have rhetorical tricks to get you to believe. I didn't use any any. And Paul was the kind of guy who could have done it, right? Paul's educated. He knew the law very well. He knew Greek. He was a Roman citizen. He had all that stuff going. So if any, if any of the apostles might have been able to employ rhetorical games to get the converts, I mean, he could have done that. By the way, one thing that Paul understood, though, that was that that multiplication wasn't just multiplication of converts. Anyway, you could win people with tricks, but you don't win them permanently that way, do you? As we've said a million times, what you win people with is what you win them to. If you win them with tricks and mixed motives and because you, they're going to get some money out of this deal or because God's going to solve their problems or whatever or things, worldly gains, if, you, if that's what you win them with, then that's what you won them to. You won them to something else. Jesus didn't say, as we said before, go ye therefore and get people to sign this card. Go ye therefore. Make disciples. So multiplication is real disciples. Actual disciples. And Paul knew there's no shortcuts to that. He also said in this same letter earlier to the Corinthians, he says, unlike many others, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. We're not peddling. We don't bootleg it. Right? We're not, we're not making money on the side. There are a lot of methods people can use to get people to, try, to say they agree with them. And we could do it. We could do some of that. Bribes. You know. Come to our church, pray this prayer behind me, and let us in, enter into the baptismal waters. And when you're way out the door, 20 bucks for everybody. You know, you get one, you get one, you get one. You hear that? Just hand out 20s on the way out. Hey, come back next week, and, uh, you know, we'll have some prayers for you to do. We'll take communion, and then you'll, and there'll be 20 more bucks on the way out the door. I mean, hmm, some people are okay with that if it looks that way. There are some people who are okay with conversions. You know, I, I lived in a place uh, for a while where it was perfectly fine with people if somebody said, I'll convert, 
so that I can date your daughter. And they were okay with that. That's not real conversion. The way they saw it is, that's okay, that gets you in the door. And that door, that door locks on the inside. <laughs> so once you're in, you, the pre- we'll, we'll, we'll hold you. We may not hold your heart, but we'll hold your pocketbook and your allegiance. But see, that's, that's not what it's about. None of those things is legitimate. Bribes, threats, trickery, manipulation. Fire and brimstone, I could scare you to death maybe. And, you know, but, but how many of those conversions hold? You might not be that scared tomorrow. It's got to be real. You know, the, the televangelist, I'm hard on them sometimes. I'm hard on them all the time. I don't really make any apologies for that. Because uh, there's a heavy, heavy reckoning someday for people who peddled the word of God for to get rich. And Paul says we don't do that. So Christ compelled multiplication. we got to have our motive pure about how we go about doing it. we got to keep our message pure and not mixed. And, and we've been given the methods of how to do it. We persuade. We, we simply make it clear. We're not, we're not supposed to take the message and make it cool, crafty, trendy. You know, just make it clear. As clear as you can make it. And, and you can do that with zeal, and you can do that repeatedly, you know, and you can do that, but, but, you, but, but just don't do it in a tricky way. And if, and if they think you're crazy, Paul says, if, they, if we're beside ourselves, hey, that, you didn't, that's fine. You weren't doing it to win the world's approval. You did it because you fear God, because the love of Christ compels you.